and welcome to What's the PH Deal podcast, the podcast where we attempt to demystify the scientific PhD process for folks going through the rigors of pursuing a PhD, thinking about getting a PhD, or even who are just curious what, what it's all about. Like, odds are, if you know someone who's been self-quarantining and avoiding people, uh, except through the occasional email or video chat, and seem to be mostly sad and very irritable, except this has been going on for, let's say, a year or two, then it's probably not COVID related. They're probably an academic going through the PhD process. And, and this, this might be, you know, a good uh, way to see, to delve into what they're going through. Uh, and uh, as always, you can check uh, the website associated with us at realphdl.com. And we'd love it if uh, you would email us at a group email, phdlmail at gmail.com. It's all in the show notes. So feel free to look them up. Uh, we may just, let you guys know we may read parts of your email may mention your name so if you have anything in your email that you don't want us to read let us know uh and we'll definitely respect that uh you could check the show notes like i said for uh for all that information and and uh we you know we look forward to receiving uh bucketfuls of emails so uh so make sure to tell your friends spread the word uh we actually have something like 70 to 80 podcast downloads per episode something kind of that I've started like delving into wow. that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, Look at that. That's kind of crazy. That's kind of crazy to me as well. So. I mean, as far as the internet goes, that's as as big as it gets. <laughs> I think so. I think that's yeah. that's. It's that's that, good. and then the next level is Joe Rogan. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're basically the pipes that carry our uh, because you know the internet is a series of pipes. The pipes that carry our our podcast are at full capacity. I think at seventy five dollars. So so that means we may. Even have like a half dozen real listeners that may not be uh, wow. my friends and family because they're like so, <laughs> so so nice and then like you know and then and then get badgered by me and and uh, download the podcast. So thank you. Uh, and of course, uh, before we get into it, I just want to throw a quick disclaimer uh, that the podcast reflects our views and is no way meant to represent uh, any of the views of any institutions or organizations that we're associated with. And we also admit we don't have the perfect or correct answer to every question, uh, unless it's Elias uh, in regards to Missouri-based trivia, because Elias, you know your enemy, right? That's, 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 of course, that's yes. very important. I'm in-house Missouri <laughs> expert on all things bad related to Missouri. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean... You- you might as well just say all things related to Missouri, right? Like to you, that's that's the same. Hey, I was being nice, but true. That's what, that's what I mean. <laughs> and uh, and you know, we may not agree on everything amongst ourselves, uh, uh, but you know, I, you know, even I find myself arguing with myself in the corner of a research lab from time to time. So take everything we say with a kilogram of salt, and which is of course the SI unit. And that brings us into the last thing. We are all science or engineering-based PhDs, so our show is obviously going to cater and concentrate mostly on that type of PhD, but we think it's applicable to all PhD life. Uh, so with that said, let's get on to the episode. So uh, I am your lead host for today, uh, Lou Estevez, and uh, I am joined today by, unfortunately, uh, Liz uh, couldn't be here, but we, to carry, you know, to, to carry forth and and uh, sojourn into this into this difficult journey. We have the materials deposition wizard uh, who dominates electrochemistry and sure. runs he runs in Nobel laureate circles. I mean, this guy is. Uh, I'm gonna get the, fired. 
kind of the famous <laughs> guy of the group. Uh, we got Rajan Patel. What's up, Rajan? Thank you. What's up? <laughs> you got the PhD Godfather who crushes science and has it driven before him and hears the lamentations of the cosmos. Elias <laughs> Nakuzi. What's up, Elias? Hello, Lou. I mean, this always feels like a WWE uh, introduction or something. <laughs> but but then, that's it. And then everybody goes home. <laughs> yeah, and then it just kind of fizzles. But it feels there's a lot of crushing and dominating. What the heck's happening, man? <laughs> that's right. That's right. At some point, you know, you can tag me in and I'll, I'll take some turns against uh, dominating science as well. <laughs> <laughs> So with that, we will go from the WWE intro to the to the meat of, of the podcast, if you will. Today, we're going to talk about a career in academia. Uh, we're going to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly in pursuing such a job. Uh, and I believe, um, uh, Elias, you are in the midst of this, are you not? I am. And actually, I just noticed as a side note, is this like a tribute to uh, Ennio Morricone on the sad uh, occasion of his death? Uh, uh, what oh, I'm saying wow. is, yeah, he wrote the soundtrack for the good, the bad, yeah. and the ugly. Yeah. yeah. And wow, Lou. I mean, even when you don't mean it, you keep coming with these amazing, <laughs> amazing <laughs> stories and Holy analogies God. and subplots. Look at that! I wow. I didn't even realize that. Uh, I, I, of course, I. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, of course, I meant to do that. And of course, of course. show <laughs> yes, how yes. well researched our show is, yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Really hard. Uh, strangely, uh, the sentence, of course, I meant to do that, uh, is a v- very well featured sentence in a career as a faculty, as a tenure track faculty. <laughs> so. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty so it's much. kind of fitting on so many levels, but sure, we're, we're excited to delve into those details today we, we of are, careers in, in faculty. So, yeah. We're hitting the topic. We're just, just hitting it with a plum, like just jumping right into it. Perfectly. <laughs> this is great. So our topic today was suggested by one of our emails we received from an actual listener who's not even related to one of us. So this is very exciting. Uh, wow. So like wow. I said- what? Yeah, yeah. So, so they, they they asked and we delivered. So get your emails in, PhDLRenos. Like we, you know, we we're we're here waiting for whatever kind of suggestions you want. So we'll we'll ho- hopefully uh, we'll we'll deliver on on the request. So um so and, and before we get into the topic, I'm just going to do some some uh, bookkeeping, if you will, some PhDL bookkeeping, uh, and just kind of give you a state of the podcast, so to speak. Uh, we we're two, 12 episodes in, I think. Uh, uh, or at least before this one, and I, th- I think uh, we've gotten 928 downloads. So that's uh, you know using some quick math skills. Uh, that's that tells us we have uh, roughly 77 downloads per episode. You know they go up and down. So that's kind of pretty exciting. I think you know we're actually reaching the masses. This is this is exciting. Still none from Missouri, by the way. Uh, so I think we've we've completely <laughs> sealed that one off. Uh, but we have listeners from 35 different countries. That's awesome. Uh, keep spreading the word. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much to, uh, to our listeners. Uh, we've got new countries this month. I think we have Iceland, Malaysia, Sweden. Uh, and, World domination. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's, and and that's not even mentioning our, uh, what, what I think is going to be our European headquarters uh, in Germany. Like, we, we get, like, a ton of downloads in Germany. Like, that's kind of very exciting. Like, so I think... Um, when COVID calms down, maybe an Oktoberfest style uh, episode from from Germany may be in order. I think. 
But, you know, it's impressive having two people in Iceland. That's maybe like 20% of the population. So uh, <laughs> it's, uh, no, no, we've started no. a movement. We've just started a movement in Iceland. It's a revolution, man. <laughs> to, 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 our, to our fragile Iceland listeners, do not let Elias's jokes scare you off. Like, don't worry. Like, we love you. Don't, don't listen to us. Yeah, we, we absolutely love you. We don't you know, by now, I even forgot... I forgot how the beef with Missouri even started by now. Like, uh, <laughs> it's a strange feeling of hate uh, with no rational uh, remembrance of wh- what's the origin of it. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, well, uh, we are, you know, despite our, our interaction with Missouri, we are making new friends. We have friends of the pod now. Uh, we have uh, Enrica, uh, who has a, um, a blog about guiding first-generation students. That is going to be on the show notes, but it's at uh, first.gen.guide.com. And like I said, we'll put it in the show notes. So if you uh, want to get uh, some inside scoop on what it's like to pursue a PhD from a first-gen grad student, just jump on that. Uh, We've Great topic, by the way. And yeah, 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 Yeah. I, I totally agree. I'm curious to, to see what that website is about. I mean, uh, it's such an important topic and uh, that's great to hear these voices and amplify them and learn more from different perspectives. Looking uh, forward. I mean, I mean, I wish I knew about that website earlier when uh, I was a grad student, first-gen grad student. Yeah. Same, same yeah. as well. Like, Elias, did you, are you a first-gen grad student as well? I am, yes. Uh, it's easier to be a first-gen in... Uh, in Lebanon, I mean, my parents' generation, it was the Civil War generation in many ways. So it was kind right. of a tumultuous yeah. period in Lebanon. So, uh, but but yeah, I mean, just hearing different perspectives from folks and from different backgrounds and their journeys. And that's so nice about science in general, you know, like there are these yeah. just universal things that we kind of uh, all like, just the scientific method and pursuit of objective truth and just the that journey but then everyone has a different perspective on that journey and it's great to hear those humanizing stories behind those hard rigid scientific pursuits so love yeah. it yeah i i agree and it and it's it's really something to to hear others talk and i think maybe it's it's not a surprise that we're all uh first gen uh, grad students I, I think liz may not be but like but everybody feels you know completely thrown into this meat grinder kind of randomly. And I think if you're a first gen grad student, you don't have any older relatives that kind of are there to tell you, okay, well, you know, worry about this. Don't worry about that. Like, so it just seems even crazier to, to, at least it did to me. Like, it seemed like everybody knew what the deal was, what the PhD was, so to speak. And I, <laughs> and, and, and I nice. was, I just felt like, I was like, I have no idea what's going on. Like, they're like, you have to choose an advisor. I'm like, is that important? And you know, like, that's how, how completely out of it I was. It's was like, no, that's, that's the most important thing in the universe. So, so yeah. So Thank you, uh, Enrica, and uh, just head on over and, and see what they got. Uh, we've also gotten some uh, listener mail uh, from Andres de, la, de los Reyes. Uh, this is going to get to show off my ability to speak Spanish. I hope, I hope that's, that's, that's <laughs> okay. Lu, Luis Estevez. Yeah, uh, you struggle a little bit there, but fine. You, you pulled it off at the end. <laughs> Andres de los Reyes. Que pasa, mi amigo? <laughs> it is. That was that was a cool email. Uh, he contacted us and uh, told us about his book. He's got a book out called oh, wow. "The Early Career Researcher's Toolbox," 
Uh, he covers insights into mentors, peer review, and landing a faculty job. So very pertinent to the to discussion today. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I haven't gone through the whole thing, nice. but he takes a kind of interesting approach. Uh, you know, he, he I think he he tries to uh, uh, use narrative tools commonly used in film to to help early careers career researchers build their own research program. It sounds sounds like a really interesting take. So I just it'll be in the show notes. Like sounds like uh, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So and and, and uh, I think he started following me on Twitter and he he. Uh, which, you know, I am social media averse. Like, I don't know what I'm doing there, but he seems a lot more savvy. And uh, and uh, he signed his name as Andy. So I guess, you know, what's up, Andy? Although I like Andres. <laughs> yes. By the way, Lou, you're just completely missing out on all the productive conversations happening on Twitter. Something like 99% of conversations on Twitter are incredibly productive. So it's a... <laughs> is that a... Yeah. You, you see, that joke went right over my head because I'm like, maybe he's being maybe he's being truthful. I don't know. Like, I really I, I don't know anything about Twitter. But I should say, you know, having not so long ago joined Twitter, there is Etsy. It's a very... it's it's Especially in academic circles, it's a useful way to connect folks. And I noticed someone did a study on uh, folks who have advocated for their research or shared them uh, on Twitter... Um, more often than not get more citations for their paper. So they do reach a bigger audience. Uh, so that's a nice thing to know. Now, of course, there's another study that I read that, uh, you know, you think that you're doing uh, science communication and advocacy on Twitter, but what ends up happening is that it's such a polarizing platform. I mean, social media is in general, that uh, most of the people you reach are like-minded people to begin with. And so you're kind of in that same circle or bubble at some level. But I mean, there's no doubt value in uh, in using these platforms productively. And I've seen it happen a lot. Uh, just uh, be nice to others, I guess, is, is a rule that works everywhere. <laughs> hey, hey, it's uh, Bill and Ted's rule. Be excellent to one another. That, that's yeah. always, that's Bill and Ted. always, always <laughs> applicable. <laughs> Sounds uh, cool. Uh, and speaking of being excellent to one another, we have another email uh, from uh, from Isabel, who's actually a fellow Cornellian. Uh, that's near and dear to my heart. So I'm like, I'm really excited. We have like uh, a Cornell, and it, like I didn't even know her before this. Like, so it's just it that makes it like <laughs> super exciting. Uh, and of course, as we know, uh, Cornell was founded by uh, Ezra Cornell. Who like you know something to the order of a thousand to two thousand years ago? I think uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> proudly, proudly exclaimed, "I would, I would found an institution where any person can find instruction in any study." And then he added, "And such a person will be put through the academic ringer and pushed to the edge of their respective breaking points, only to be exacerbated by the Ithacan lack of sunlight." On constant awful weather, it was just a very profound kind of uh, thing. <laughs> I, I may have added the last part, but 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 it you know it is true. Founded by Ezra Cornell, uh, although not a thousand years ago. But uh, and I and Ithaca is is absolutely gorgeous and awesome. Uh, for me, it was for pursuing a PhD, and some of uh, my fondest memories are there. And so, I, so I was very excited to get the email from Isabel, and she wanted to tackle a more in depth look at an academic career. So here we are. Uh, you got it, Isabel. We will do our best. Um, so to start off, we, we have broken the, this topic into three sections. Uh, and basically, it's achieving, uh, attempting to get a tenure track position as a professor. And we've broken it up into the good, the bad, and the ugly. So 
let's start off with the good. Uh, you know, I think, uh, does anyone want to start off or do you want me to start off? Or? You were about to say something exciting, so go for okay. it. All right, all right. I, I, I feel like I'm hogging the, the, the spotlight, but I will no. say, to me... The Just best, hug it, man. Hug it. That's it. I'm, I'm taking it. <laughs> you get to have your own research group. That is awesome. I mean, you have your own little fiefdom. You run it as you see fit. You get to basically uh, decide what research you want to pursue. Uh, of course, it's towards uh, uh, an end of uh, securing the tenure track position, and we'll get into all that. But to me, this is the most exciting part. Like, if you uh, are doing work as a PhD student and you're and you're constantly thinking, oh, "I wish I was pursuing this, or I had the opportunity to do this, and maybe have some students to help me do X, Y, and Z," this this might be the way to go because to me this is the most exciting part about uh achieving a, a tenure track position you get your own research group you get to decide what you work on i mean what better thing can there be uh, that, at least that's what i think what do you guys think about that yeah absolutely i mean mentorship is is really such a nice uh, such a nice experience if it's something you like and just to give an idea there are different types of tenure track positions and we can just broadly define them as maybe two categories. One is when you're in a research institution, so often referred to as R1 or research-heavy institutes or whatever, something sure. like that. And there's maybe like 110 or 120 of these in the United States. And in these kinds of institutes, well, very clearly the main metric for success is your research output and productivity. And that could be uh, measured in terms of how the types of grants and money you secure and bring in, the types of papers that you're publishing, patents that you're creating, and just general contribution to so, some sort of intellectual space that you are an expert is. And I mean, it's quite, quite difficult to put a number on it, but maybe you would be uh, mostly focusing on your research. And then there is a portion that's the teaching aspect, as in like class teaching. And that's sure. maybe one course per semester or two courses per academic year. And then the third component of your job is the service, mostly academic service, which is uh, serving on committees or faculty searches or some kind of outreach and things to that effect. So there are three prongs to this job, research, teaching, and service, but it's really very heavily research-oriented, 70, 75%, at least nominally research-oriented. And then the other category of these types of jobs is in uh, primarily undergraduate institutes or not as research heavy institutes. And there you actually have the same kind of uh, three prongs or components of your job, but it's more slanted towards teaching and to some extent service and less so towards research. Of course, things have become so competitive that you are expected to have some research output in these kinds of jobs as well. But to lose point, leading a research group or creating a course uh, that has some value for your students, uh, you know, for their career development, seeing your students just go from being excited about some research problem and then creating a career out of it. I mean, for many people, that's an invaluable part of your job. And, and that's no doubt big picture part of a faculty uh, professor's job. So if that's what you like, this is definitely the good part of this job, no doubt. Yeah, I, I think, uh, um, what what do you guys think about like balancing, um, 
because I I imagine if you're um if you're uh, trying to achieve a tenure track position, you're being judged whether you get that tenure based uh, the the ones who are making that decision are your the other tenure track professors within your department, right? Like they're the ones who are going to like weigh in on this. You know, they're they're gonna they're gonna put on their druidic robes and go to some like uh, <laughs> forest in the middle of nowhere and maybe uh. It's like the sorting stuff. hat if you know Harry Potter, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? It, 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 it's cloaked in mysticism and all kinds of weird, uh, weird like decisions, and you know, and there may be I don't know. Uh, who knows what how they do these things in, in their weird little <laughs> little uh, ivory towers or or outside in, in their druidic circles, but uh, but I but you are being ju- you're going to be judged by um, the the folks in your department that that already have tenure. So I wonder, like, is it I, this is one of the things I was thinking about. Well, we're talking about the good, but I'm still wondering, can you get uh, research, mentorship, uh, teaching done that you want to do uh, with while still trying to, uh, you know, you have pressure to get funding and, and write lots of grants. And, and that's ultimately go- going to dis- determine, you know, uh, part of your success for getting tenure is going to be like, how much money can you bring in? How much research would they hire you? They're looking for someone who can bring in funding. And I imagine, right? Like it's, it's, it's got to come down to money at some point. So I, you know, I just wonder what your thoughts are about like balancing those things, like being able, of course you need money to get the research done, but at the same time, uh, it, it, do you think it's an achievable, I mean, it must be because other, other professors do it, but to, to me, it's just like, it's, uh, something that I think would be really, really difficult with trying to keep, um, on one hand, like, pull, you know, being able to obtain funding, write grants, write proposals, and at the same time, trying to advance your research. Like, is it just a lot of delegating? Like, what do you think, uh, Elias? Yeah, uh... I think now, if you're going to start uh, a faculty job, if you got that contract, actually, that is the best time to shape your research for the long term and do what you want. Uh, a couple things here. The tenure committee and the faculty, they're on your team. They want you to succeed. They're not investing. It's a huge investment, you know, from yeah, the yeah, in terms yeah. of the dean and in terms of the department. It's a huge investment for the long term. I mean, that's like salary till the uh, until you retire. And that's like a front up startup uh, money to, to start your project. It's a huge investment. They want you to succeed. They do not want to go back to the dean in five years and say, yeah, hey, that candidate we brought in five years ago, we think they're not up for the job. We have to let them go. And by the way, can you give us more money for a faculty search next year? <laughs> right? No one wants that. Sure. So they, they're on your team. They're doing everything to help you succeed. So, so that's, great. Uh, that's great in that sense. Now, of course, it's still there. It's a high benchmark and you have to meet it and it's hard work. But uh, except those really, really big universities where they almost like hire two people for one job and let them fight it over and in five oh years God, decide that who... exists? I mean <laughs> yes at some yeah. level but for most of the institutions they're hiring you to keep you so yeah. uh, they want you to succeed so what do you need to succeed and if they make that commitment with a startup project that sure they can fund your 400k instrument or 300k uh, equipment or whatever then uh, that's the best time for you to shape your projects in the long term, to set up yourself to succeed. That's the time to be asking for more and negotiating. And hey, if, uh, if, if they don't want you to be crippled while you're there, like in the sense that you don't have all you need and then you're struggling and you come back, hey, if you gave me 100 extra K, I would have done more research. Well, uh, why didn't you tell us before? So 
Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to end by saying in the longer term, obviously you're at the whims of NSF grants and funding trajectories, and especially with the new Department of Energy federal grants and NIH, where they're even more selective and quote-unquote exclusive. And then you have to follow the interests of what the granting institutions want and write those grants, less so with NSF, but still to some extent with the National Science Foundation as well. But uh, actually, now is the time to set up your lab for the sure. kind of project direction you care for in the future. I, I imagine it's it's that's like you said, that's probably your strongest negotiating uh, position is right when you start, like as far as being able to ask for stuff and being it because at that point they're they hired you because they fell in love with you and and your research and what you're going to do at their institution so at the, it's still kind of the honeymoon period i imagine so that's the time when you're like okay look i need to i need this i need that i i need uh maybe a little more money to to kind of really push this this area of research or we we, we need an institute to you know we need a lot of money to kind of make a whole you know let let's go for broke here and at that point i imagine you're kind of you're you're a little bit more, uh, you have, you know, the glow of, of your recent hire is still on you and you're this promising hotshot researcher that's going to revolutionize their field and they're going to, you know, they're going to, uh, and they're happy and lucky to have gotten you. I think, I, and, and so that kind of makes sense. I imagine, and that's part of the good, you know, like you're, so that, that's great. I didn't even think of that. Like you, like, uh, that makes sense that they would be completely, uh, on your side in, in that regard. I was, I was hoping it wouldn't be like more like academic hazing uh, <laughs> you, going for your PhD where it's like all of a sudden you're on the bottom rung and like everybody's in like, hey, can you, you should be on this committee and, and they have, and they can have a lot more sway and, and, and direction in, in, in what you do because, you know, ultimately they're going to be deciding on uh, your fate in, in five or six years. So, so that, that's actually good to hear. So that's true. And I, I, I don't know personally but i witnessed my advisor since i was his first student go through all this thing uh and in missouri uh, sorry missouri snt doesn't is not a uh, for a chemical engineering department when i started was not a bigger department at the time when we started but it was in transition period uh which later on got got its own building and everything but I, my advisor was able to get grants from other departments to do research. So they had their, because material science at Missouri S&T is huge. Aer aerospace engineering, those two are the biggest department at Missouri S&T. Oh, tracks, yeah. like they are probably top five when at least in the, at least if you consider from mid, mid Midwest to East side, because uh, just the departments. And so, and so because of that, they have more, a lot more funding and a lot more variety of funding, uh, like uh, variety of research that you could do uh, and use those research funding uh, for. So he was able to acquire some of that. So there are always in, like other options within your universities as well or university system because University of Missouri has like four campuses and stuff like that. So you can access the resources across that system as well. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, while we're still on the, the topic of the good, uh, let's, uh, I think <laughs> part, part of why, uh, a tenure track position is so great is, um, not only do you have your, your job or career pretty much almost guaranteed, uh, 
uh, for for the next thirty or forty years. So it's like like Elliot said, it's a huge investment. You have people who are basically telling you like, uh, once you go through tenure and you get accepted, that's it. Like you you are attached to that school and that community, and that can be really great too. Like now you're part of wherever it may be, whether it's a uh, even Missouri uh, would could, could be a wonderful place to 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 raise family, uh, have you know grow into the community, and uh, and basically and and I think most uh, most schools at least that's from what I've heard you get some really nice benefits too. I think your your kids' tuition is typically covered. Uh, so that's I mean nowadays that's like uh, that's like the cost of two Teslas uh, or something like to to send someone to college. So that it's it's <laughs> by no means a a minor thing that's huge like if you have if you have kids and you you know you don't want to pay you know <laughs> a small mortgage on on their education that then you you have your education covered if they if they go to the school that you teach at that's really nice and 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 it's and you get to be part of the community part of the the landscape of the school and you and you get to use the school and their resources like they have not just academically but but uh but pushing your career like you get their pr right so they have you know, if you do something really nice, you have somebody like pushing your work out there and kind of getting getting it out so that the rest of the world can see it. Maybe you have resources like um, uh, access to to newspapers and, and news when when you you're doing pretty uh, pretty innovative work. So so there's there's quite a bit you can uh, that comes with this job, not just having a stable job and not just being able to do research, but there's so many little perks that just comes with you being essentially a fixture within this university and within the community, which I think is pretty nice as well. Another often important selling point is, you know, the kind of people who are interested in these jobs are sometimes folks who are kind of clear-eyed idealists who think education and research and doing good for humanity is a great endeavor. And there's no doubt a lot of truth to that. It's a kind of job where you have academic freedom and security to uh, to pursue the kind of research that you think is significant and important and useful. You get to be a mentor, hopefully a good mentor. Yes. Uh, and we are talking off, often on this show about the power imbalance between professor and student in academia. And so hopefully you remember <laughs> what it was like <laughs> on the other side of that and then uh, be a force for change and good. All of that is an incredible asset. And it is true about academia. But I did want to say maybe that's a segue to Ooh, the bad okay. or the oh, ugly. The fun bad part. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that it's not as binary as you would think in that sense. It's not... For, for everyone who finds this kind of job appealing because you have intellectual freedom and that you're different from, quote unquote, corporate America or like a different type of job in the private sector, it's important to not be naive about this. You know, academic politics can be incredibly brutal and yeah. there is no everyone here is good and everyone there is bad. And obviously for human growth and development, we need... Uh, companies and corporates and rewarding innovation and all that good stuff. And ideally, we need collaboration between the intellectual academics in their ivory towers and the folks uh, in the private sector, right? And so what I would say is it's there's two sides of it. Yes, you can have your own, uh, say, ideas that you live up to. This kind of job lends itself nicely for that. But let's not say that this is a binary thing and that being there is inherently 
uh, and idealistic and quote-unquote progressive uh, position, whereas the other folks in the corporate are evil just by default, right? So, uh, so I'm just saying because this is both an appealing topic, but often uh, for, for folks just in terms of thinking of the career trajectory uh, at an early stage of their career to go into academia, but then who later find out, wait, what's happening here? There's a lot of brutal politics in this uh, job as well and lots of uh, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah, they exist <laughs> and a lot. So, uh, so just something to think about in the longer term as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it, and it harkens back to, uh, what we're talking about being a first gen, uh, grad student, uh, basically for me, I, I remember going into grad school and when I decided, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go to grad school and become, become a researcher. I was talking to one of my friends who, who knew a little bit more about how academia works I had no idea how it worked, and so I was telling him, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to grad school." He's like, "Oh yeah, why are you gonna do that? Like, you can get like a really nice job, like right out of uh, you know mechanical engineering." I'm like, "Yeah, but I want to do research, and I just want to go." I, I remember like just I'm cracking up even just saying it. I go, "I want to go somewhere where the only the only uh, thing that will define who I am is my work and nothing else, and free free of politics and free of any kind of um, bureaucracy." And he was like, are you insane? Like, he's like, it's, the egos just get bigger and the problems just get bigger. Like, he's, and I remember just being like, oh, is, is that true? Is this vision that I have in this utopia in my head incorrect? And then, you know, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I was kind of naive a bit, like, going into it. But, but yeah, so there, there, is, there, there is some of that for sure. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, and then there's uh, on top of, you know, just a, like, add a little bit m more bad into our good, bad, and the ugly uh, uh, pie, so to speak. Uh, on, on some other uh, bad is these these jobs are tough to get, right, Elias? Like this is this is no, and 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 Rajan, I, I know you're not looking for a job like myself, like in academia, right now. Right. But yeah, I mean, it's no. but but yeah, yeah, this is this is like standard operating procedure, right? Like yeah. uh, less than one percent. That that doesn't sound crazy to me. That that's probably correct, right? Like it's something like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's something in the order of 0.35 percent of scientists and engineers with PhDs end up getting these jobs. And you know, the the reason why we say this is is just so people can know it and yeah. get 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 just get a feeling for that. It's not twenty or thirty percent. Well, you know, when you say it's a yeah. tough job to get. There's many follow-up questions to that. <laughs> yeah, right? so, yeah. yeah, yeah, and and because the good is so good, you get to do your own research. You have uh, oh, yeah. eventually you get to uh, you're on your 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 way on a path to tenure, which means a career for thirty or forty years. That that's not a no. You can't claim that just about anywhere else. Like that's that's a very unique thing to to academia. So these yeah. are really tough to get because everybody wants them. And then as a result, it's not like there's, you know, uh, at, you know, uh, what, what was it? Uh, a, a third of a percent. So let's <laughs> say you have three, you know, 300 plus people interviewing for the same job that it's not like, Hey, 200 of them are terrible. And there's like, you know, and then there's a top 100 that's okay. And then the top 10 is really good. It's like, no, you're dealing with like a hundred or more really, really well qualified, like, like folks that, that you're going up against. So it's, it's a highly competitive landscape. It's not like it, it narrows down much. I mean, you, you're constantly in competition with, for, for a few spots with a lot of 
very, very overqualified folks. So it's a tough gig to get. Uh, I, I mean, you you have to go up against Elias. I mean, good luck. I mean, Elias. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what uh, that's what the candidates for the same jobs I interviewed for said, but they ended up getting the jobs. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I interviewed in the previous cycle uh, was the first time I applied for jobs and I was quite excited. I thought it was a positive response. I later learned that it was one of the best times to be applying. So departments were expanding in terms of just the number of uh, positions open. So I counted something like, uh, for example, I'm a physical chemist. There were maybe uh, 10 to 15 uh, PCAM jobs in research institutes in the US. And on top of that, there were maybe 20 to 25 open chemistry jobs in the US. Now, if that doesn't sound like a lot, actually it is for 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 this kind of business. It's That's a lot. Gotcha. So this will only get worse in this coming year. So something to keep mind sure. of. Now, now, if you're starting your PhD traje- career, don't, don't worry about that. But just if you're now in the market for jobs, uh, it's a time of uncertainty because of the COVID-19 situation that lots of com- uh, universities are losing their endowments. They're not sure about enrollment. They don't have lots of cash on hand. So they are kind of wary to open uh, new positions. To give you an idea, during the 2008 crash, uh, the uh, the the, the faculty positions dropped down by like 60 to 80%. So a type of job that there were 50 wow. openings for, the next year there was something like 10 openings for. And just talking with professors and folks who used to be on faculty committees, I'm learning that one should expect something similar now in the coming year and actually two years. Uh, it's kind of like a lagging indicator. But uh, if you're starting your PhD now, hey, maybe that's when the market for faculty positions would be recovering is by the time you you end your graduate study. So just to give you a heads up on just the situation at the moment uh, versus in five years or so, these things go in cycles. And uh, of course, one thing to say is that the enrollment in graduate school happens in reverse. So the positions for grad programs actually increase when there's a recession because folks who would otherwise be jumping into the market quickly from their bachelor's degrees, if it's a slower uh, market, they would go for a higher degree. So uh, if you're starting up uh, your tenure track position, now is a great time because there's a lot of talent that's coming in. So so it's it's, uh, interesting just to know a little bit of that landscape as you navigate it. But hey, go for the job if you like it, but just know a little bit about the odds for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's a good point. I mean, you, I mean, you, this, if you want the position, you just go for it. Uh, you know, it's interesting to know these things, but it's almost impossible to game for it. Right. Like you don't want to be like, okay, I'm going to anticipate there's a recession coming here. And you know, it's, 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 but, it, but Elias's point is totally on point, right? Like it's, it's good to know what, what you're in for, for sure. And so if you have a lot, it, it like you said, if uh, I didn't even think of that, but that makes sense. If you're, starting your uh, your tenure track position now, this is great. You have a ton of students who are like, oh, this job market's scary. I, I don't want to go there. And, and I, 
and you have a lot of students to, to pick from. So that that's that's kind of exciting. Uh, so, but but yeah, I mean, it's not going to be easy no matter what. Like even the best case scenario, I'm sure it, these these jobs are really really tough. I mean, the bad is that part of the bad I think is inescapable with this kind of a training track position. It's like good luck. It's really tough. It's it's and then if you get the position then you are right away the, the clock's ticking right like all of a sudden you you're going to have to at some point uh try to get uh tenure right so whether five or six years or something like that so right away you know you kind of i think you uh and alex uh, maybe you can speak more on this or, or rajan if you know a bit more about this as well like this is outside of my wheelhouse a bit but i imagine you you start you already have a plan pretty much to be like oh. okay this is what i have to yeah. do like before you even get the position, right? Like you kind of need to kind of have exactly what you're going to be doing and how you're going to build up your resume for this eventual, um, you know, like kind of almost like a second PhD defense. Like forget about like oh, yeah. what you yeah. just what you just did as a grad student and and uh, trying to navigate that world. Now you have this whole new thing that six years later you're going to be be you know going to be put through the ringer and then at the end of it like get judged again and, and then go into another promised land that hopefully is the last, the last one. So I, I imagine you got to start that right off the bat, right? Like, yeah, the planning requires during the application process itself, right? If I'm not wrong, at least. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah. Cause they, yeah. some of the positions, uh, application, uh, packet requires this, like, okay, what's your teaching plan? What's your research plan? And then when you go there, you have to answer all these questions when you have a one-on-one -on -one or, or maybe a group uh, presentation and, and you, you have to go through all the details about it and and hope that they like it because <laughs> they because there is no uh, like clear uh, uh, markings uh, in the list uh, somewhere that oh if you do this this is the right way or this is the wrong way it's it's very subjective yeah absolutely and maybe we can get a bit into the mechanics of what goes into the application sure. so one part of it is a cover letter just describing why you would fit this position broadly defined and then the main key thing is the research plan that raj is referring to now so some universities say a six-page proposal or a 10-page proposal some say break it down into three different proposals what they're really looking into is is not something that looks like a project or a paper, but something that looks like a long-term research plan that you can build on, uh, an expertise, right. a subfield that you could become a leader in, and that's interconnected and coherent. Uh, more so than this is the next experiment. Absolutely. More so than this is the next experiment from my last paper or something like that. Sure. They, they're looking for a document that's more or less, with some tweaks, ready to go for an NSF grant. So they would like you to have the uh, good enough uh, uh, exposure of the technical specifics, but also a, a grasp of the big picture ideas of what this work will accomplish. So to know that, well, yeah, you, you've thought about what exactly the experiments or simulations will be like, but also how they fit, fit into the bigger literature. Of course, that's important for any kind of proposal at any level, but even more so when you're searching for a lifetime job, essentially. Uh, they want to know that you understand the research funding environment as well. So where exactly would you apply this uh, proposal to? Which kind of type of grant or proposal or agency or subcommittee within an agency even? 
to kind of know that you're savvy enough to say, hey, I'm not just good at the technical skills, which you have to be, but sure. also on who would be interested in these technical advancements and where you would be sending them. So that's in terms of the research plan in general. Uh, also, they do ask maybe for a one-page teaching statement, especially if it's a research institute. Uh, it's not more than a one-page, but it is contrary to what people often think. It is also important, uh, kind of like your teaching philosophy, which classes you will be teaching. I mean, someone has to teach the classes sure. uh, at that university, and they want to see if you fit a gap there as well. Uh, more and more schools are asking for a diversity and inclusion statement on what you would be doing to advocate Oh, advocate for yeah um, so for their own outreach programs or uh, what kind of what new do you bring to the table there uh, that's great yeah I think that's nice and maybe schools are I think I mean getting towards thinking of these not just in terms of metrics right because for example NSF actually values that quite a lot especially for NSF career projects but not in just in terms of hitting metrics, but for actual true advancement on these issues. So, so it's important to be up to, you don't want to be out of touch for what's happening in the world is what I'm saying. Sure. You have to show that you understand these things well. So these are the things that are the main components. And if it's a school that's on a tight budget, many times they ask for a preliminary budget. So uh, what does that mean? Well, it does not mean that you should undersell yourself. You don't want to go to a university where it's a smaller budget than you would have liked or you would have needed to succeed and then find that out 10 years later or when the 10-year clock is up in five years or so. Be honest, you're not gonna get an interview if you have a very small broad budget or a very large budget. Give your own budget, don't overthink it and uh, do not tailor your whole life for the budget of your startup grant. Like, uh, and that's more natural for people, uh, for them and for you. You're just gonna be comfortable if you're honest upfront about the situation. But just to give you a heads up on, on, uh, on some schools needing a budget, I would say the most important thing in your portfolio is your research plan, no doubt. So, so that's kind of the main thing, at least in terms of the things that you have control over. There are things that you don't have control over, like uh, university, which group you worked, your publication record and your whole life and things like that. And those are incredibly important metrics, but everything that's within your hands, you need to make the most of and give the best possible portfolio and representation of your research plan that you can. Yeah, I, I, I imagine looking at it from the school's point of view, they want someone who's going to revolutionize a field. They, you know, they're, they're not looking for someone to carry on research in a, uh, like you said, a standard way. Like, okay, the next thing I want to do is this. And the next thing, I, what they want to do is like, they want someone to be in there like, oh, okay, I, this is how everyone's doing it. That's cool. Whatever. I'm going to do it totally different and it's going to revolutionize the field. And what I'm going to do is, you know, make a tremendous impact this way and basically show, you know, this, this new way of doing things and kind of it's going to, you know, it may lead to uh, having uh, funding from some kind of outside agency that puts up a center for research and we can be the people known for doing blah, blah, Absolutely. blah research. Like that's kind of, they're looking for like, uh, and, and more to what you're saying, like a foundation, they're looking for something to build on. They're not looking for just like, 
good ideas here and there. They're just looking for like, here's this foundation I'm going to lay. And from this foundation, all this tree of knowledge is going to spring up and students will learn and then we'll be able to get funding to do research and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, we'll have like uh, people going here and, and, uh, and learning these techniques and then taking it to other schools when they become professors and they, you know, like they, they want something that, that, can show some kind of branching out from this, this, uh, this, this initiation point, and they want you to be that. So it's it's quite a big ask, but like you know, it's a great job. So it's it's going to require you to really just wow them, like to you know. So I you know, so at, at this point, I'm like I you know, and, and by the way, like if 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 you're a university uh, chancellor or somebody or the department <laughs> head listening in, Elias is awesome. Like he he's all these things. <laughs> Times a million, like, you know. And I mean, many times, uh, like, I feel like also in addition to just change, like revolutionizing the field, I feel like uh, departments are more focused on themselves also because they many times, for example, I mean, I'm going by one example that I know is Missouri SNT because when my professor joined, he joined to a group where it was not that good, not that big, I'm saying, uh, and uh, was just trying to expand itself and rec- get a better recognition. Uh, so they are looking for a person who, who would help them build that image uh, as a department, better department, and uh, through their science and through their teaching, however, you know. So there they might be the different aspects that you, which you might be able to pick up when you go for an interview, which is another I mean, if you get an interview, that's, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, to summarize what Raj and Lou are saying, the next time the textbook is written on your research, expert, on, on your field of expertise, right? are you the person who's writing a chapter or two chapters on this topic? And I don't mean like those textbooks that, you know, every couple months there's a new journal doing some review on everything in the universe. I mean, like the proper, the benchmark, when the benchmark textbook on this field is written, are you writing a chapter in it on your expertise? Yeah. Yeah. Or another way of thinking of it, you need to pick a topic where you are one of like the top two or three or five experts in the world or in North America. And it has to be not too small that no one cares about it. So be ambitious, but it has to be not too broad that like batteries uh, in general, you know, like uh, right. that, that's not how you start a tenure yeah. uh, position, but find a niche that's meaningful, significant, but also your baby, that you're going to be the expert on this now and 20 years from now. So, yeah. And, and, and just, uh, I have a question, like something that you may know because you're in the middle of it, uh, Elias, but uh, you know, how do you differentiate yourself from what your advisor was doing and your and when you did a postdoc uh you're you're working under somebody as well and so like you i imagine you have to you can't just say hey i'm going to be doing like for me like my advisor was uh professor gianellis and i I mean like i'm gonna do you know his work but like with this you know it's like it has to be something I, i imagine this and this could be really tough like i imagine like and thus falls into the bad category you have to you know somehow pull this parlor trick almost of 
of being really, really good at something uh, as a PhD student and being re- and then continuing on, onto your postdoc and then say, forget all that. I'm going to do something that's revolutionary and different. Sure, I use this stuff uh, to kind of uh, inform what I'm going to do, but it's going to be complete. So you have to kind of almost reinvent yourself uh, in a way so that you're not just repeating what somebody else is doing, right? Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. Oh, you need awful. to... <laughs> No, you really did. You need to be, well, you're, you're saying exactly what you said, two contradictory things. You're saying, yeah. hey, I'm an expert in this because I come from this place and this lab. That's but right. by the way, I'm going to be doing something completely different because I'm independent, <laughs> right? And, and that's the thing. There are ways where you can, leading up to your position, be, show that independence. One is if you can secure a research grant uh, yourself, for example, for your postdoc fellowship or something cough, like that. Yeah, 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 if you can show, demonstrate that you've written proposals, ideally that you were a PI on a proposal and you secured it and those were your ideas, that's one. Two is do not undervalue recommendation letters from your advisors oh, yes. and uh, the, the value of those as well. So if you really are that person and your advisors are vouching for you being that person and in the interview process, you're really coming off as an independent, agile thinker, then you probably are. So, so these are smart people interviewing you and these characteristics come across in an interview. So that's the second thing. Thirdly, if it's possible for you, if in any way your institution allows it or if it's possible, uh, things like collaborating on projects where your expertise was useful in a consulting capacity or in some experiment that you're on papers that your advisor isn't even on, for example. So folks are reaching out to you Gotcha. For your specific expertise, that helps. If you're a corresponding author or co-corresponding author along with your advisor on a project because you really have led that project, that helps. And, you know, when you're a graduate student, first year, second year, you don't even can fathom you yourself being a corresponding author on a paper. Uh, but when you're a senior level postdoc and you're searching for those jobs, no, uh, discuss with, with your advisor. If you got the money for it, or if you really led the intellectual development of that project, ask if you can be placed as a co-corresponding author. That really shows leadership and independence of thought. It, it really gives you strong claim when you go to that interview that, hey, I didn't just follow the lead of my advisor. I actually came up with these ideas. So there's a lot of ways to try to augment these this, this independence of, of your work as well. I see. I see. You got to show that you're even while you're working for someone, you got to show that you're, you're still pushing some aspects of the work or, or there's things that are, that are your babies, basically that you've, you came up with that you figured out and that you kind of were the main person spearheading something. Yeah. And another way to show exactly that is, so I mentioned that, for example, universities might be asking for three proposals. Well, one of them could be a safety net proposal, that's kind of an extension of what you've been doing. So this is going to give you papers. You, you see the light at the end of the tunnel. You're not just completely shooting in the dark. Sure. So if you have some kind of that, that's fine. But proposals two and three can be where you take more risks and, and show I your see. independence, right? I so see. you can play that game, which you actually have to do when you get that position. Right. You, right. right? You have to manage yeah. risk. And so... Uh, y- Sometimes, I mean, the sad reality of life is that just understanding these soft uh, messages and soft skills and playing the game 
often correlates with success. I mean, for better or for worse, it's not just knowing more science that ensures more success, but managing risk as well. Doing a project that gives you a paper versus a project that defines you completely, but it's a high risk. And showing that you understand that balance really shows that you have enough expertise, but at the same time, you're independent as well. Gotcha. Uh, and, and, and just uh, to kind of uh, continue with the theme and, and get everybody up to speed, um, basically, the, the, the skeletal structure of pursuing uh, tenure track position is that, you know, you, you, you get the job. That's exciting for, I imagine, like two seconds, right? And then you're like, oh, no, now I got to worry about Now I got to worry about doing all the stuff that I said I was going to do. And then, and I imagine you, you I think from, I, I actually just, uh, for the record, I did a little bit of research. I did I did a Google search and found out what a typical tenure track position, uh, uh, you know, uh, path is. And I found out that um, uh, after the second or third year, you come up to uh, an initial review, right? So like your contract is given to you for like two or three years. And then you, then you come up to like, kind of like a mid- you know, mid tenure track review. And then apparently that can vary. Like it can be just pretty perfunctory and like, okay, yeah, everything seems in order. Great. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. Or it could be just like putting you through the ringer. Like, you know, like you, you're almost like a mini, a mini tenure kind of, uh, uh, that you're going through as well. Then when you get through that, if you pass that, now you actually have to worry about the actual tenure review process and that you're halfway through and you get a new contract to go to that. And I think, uh, and, and this is, you know, to delve a little into the good, I think for schools where the, the mid-season, mid-season or the, mid, the midway review is, uh, is particularly nerve-wracking, they can, um, they give you like a, a chance to do a sabbatical or something like that to kind of like recharge a bit and then, and then come back into it. So it's, it, you know, they, it sounds like they, uh, it, it's arduous, but it, it sounds like, uh, something that they're aware of. And at least, uh, even though it's a tough, tough haul, it's, it, they understand. And I imagine they've been there before and they, they, they know what it's like. So it's, it's, it's not as terribly bad as, as we may be saying. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, it should be, it should be difficult, right? Like you are, you are being invested in heavily. Like when you get a position like this, basically it's, you know, they are committing 30 or 40 years of, of salary benefits, uh, re, you know, um, startup research funding, all kinds of things to, 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 to hope that it pays off uh, over the long haul. So they, they're throwing a ton at you and, and investing a lot in you. So, I mean, it's, it, it probably, it, it seems kind I mean, it seems very arduous and difficult, but I mean, it's probably in, in a sense kind of fair, you know, I, I think, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's 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 tough, and for good reason, I guess. Or uh, many universities offer the option, or at least most universities who care about their employees offer the option of <laughs> of stopping the ten year clock for family reasons. If you had a kid, if you had a baby, or for things like that. So, I mean, all of these things, and all you graduate students know exactly what I mean by this next sentence. Candidacy for your PhD is tough. The defense is tough. All those things are tough. But while you're doing your graduate program, you kind of know if you're on the right track or not. You can kind of see what's around you and yeah, know that. Yeah. And it's the same with tenure. 
it's not as if during that uh, mid-tenure mid, mid review, which is often within the department, so not necessarily with the, the dean themselves as well, uh, I mean, you kind of know that, yeah, I mean, I led this conference, I secured this grant, uh, we published this paper, and we have two papers in the making. I mean, that's a pretty good deal. So, but but if you have none of those things, then you kind of know that you're lagging. So, it's what it's not as if you're being surprised uh, while you're doing it. Just like you are not usually during your graduate school program anyway. So it's just that, but on steroids is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> Oof, sounds uh, sounds rough though, and 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 that brings us, of course. To probably the best part, the ugly. All right, the, <laughs> the, the ugly aspects of of pursuing a tenure track position, and uh, it, so this is like, so everybody knows uh, the good, right? Like um, at least in a general way, right? Like you get this this guaranteed career, pretty much, uh, uh, and and funding to do it, and resources, and all this wonderful like idyllic life of chasing the research you want to do, and blah blah blah. And everyone knows the ugly. It's really tough to get, and you get put through the ringer to, to, to show that you can actually do this. So that's a, that that sounds bad. Now there's the ugly. Now we get like there's other like like the extreme politics that Elias was talking about. Or here's something that that for me, and I feel very uh, unwoke that this kind of hit me like uh, uh, a little bit uh, caught, caught me uh, off guard. Is is how patriarchal. Uh, the whole thing can be huh. and, and how our society, I know it, this shouldn't be a surprise, but every time it comes up, I'm like, that's right. Like I forget that, like the whole world, like is generally sucks more for being a woman than being for being man in just about every which way. And academia is despite being lofty and, and uh, progressive and very woke, it's suffers the same fate by and large. Right. So, so I, I basically this this came this 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 was a uh, demonstrated to me when I was I we had a, a young assistant professor who was female who um you know she was trying to get tenure and whatever like like all the young professors in in, in at, at Cornell and all of a sudden one day she was showing that she was pregnant right and then and I was like oh wow she's pregnant that's cool like you know it seemed like it and of course you know I'm, I'm not stupid I don't say hey are you pregnant or whatever just <laughs> you never ask uh, <laughs> never ask a, a woman but but uh, but but you know that was like kind of the rumor amongst uh, uh, grad schools like oh wow the professor is uh, pregnant and then and then I heard someone say wow that's really ballsy and I'm like what the hell what do you mean like it's pregnant I mean there's nothing. It's like, well, you know, she she doesn't have tenure yet. Like, that's like <laughs> that that can really hurt her tenure. I'm like, what? You know, it felt just like the same naive thing I had going saying, what? There's politics involved. Like, I was like, what do you mean? How could that hurt her tenure? It has nothing to do with her career, and it's like just pursuing a family, just like the males in our department do when they have kids. And they were just like, oh, Lou, you're so naive. Like, it's it's tougher for a woman who 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 you know shows she's pregnant because she's the mom and she's going to be taken out of research and so it's like it's generally seen as like ooh that might hurt her chances which to me was like oh my god you gotta be kidding me like it's like past 2000 we're still doing this crap but it still exists right this this is this is an actual thing and it, it and you know i felt naive and 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 dumb for like not realizing this but like yeah it's it's this is present right this is part of the ugly ugliness of of having power over someone's career and then 
and and you have some people who are not like progressive or woke and or or don't realize that starting a family is not should 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 be a viable option for anybody who who's trying to pursue this position and and yet this this does this will happen so uh that that's the first thing i thought of when i thought of the ugliest thing i could think of i was like ah i can't believe this stuff's still going on but uh but i don't know do you, do you guys have any uh input on this and, and other aspects of what could be ugly about uh pursuing a uh tenure track position so that that one example of that is what's known as the female tax or the minority tax, which is oh God. an extra tax that if you fall under those groups, you have to pay, which is you have to be part of all the outreach for the department, all the panels. Okay. Or okay. Just to, you know, you might have uh, 90% of the department is from one demographic group, say like white males. And then the other 10% has to be part of like this, 90% of all outreach events <laughs> just see, just to yeah. show that it's a diverse department and and of course these folks are role models it's important that people who are interested in i mean obviously the benefits are great but hey being on all those panels doesn't increase your age index or doesn't get you <laughs> yeah, yeah. doesn't get you academic recognition by the traditional metrics that you're often judged on so yeah. uh, so it's just this extra uh, thing that you need to overcome if you're part of those underrepresented groups uh, just to reach that baseline uh, of, of just everything else being about acad academics. Uh, there's this extra step even to get to that baseline to start towards your tenureship. And, oh and it's God. not easy, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I agree. Exactly. And, and, and some subtle version of that, oh, not that, but uh, a, a bad or ugly part would be the publication itself, right? Because you know you're going to be judged based on number of publications and number of people graduating from your group, uh, getting PhDs and stuff, right? There's a, some criteria sure. depending on your department and everything. And so what ends up happening is just you somehow find a, a, a shortcut and, and get it done, you know? And hey, and sure, like, hey, I did it. But then if you look at that, like it's the quality versus quantity issue, right? That that comes up. And it's very easy to get that number in terms of like, let's say publication and stuff. But like, if you look at it, like, did, is it really moving forward science, you know, and as a whole or, or even in tiny portion, like so. That's that kind of thing is kind of uh, uh, hidden in this some 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 cases. Absolutely. I mean, to go back to when I was in the kind of good slash segue towards bad, when I was talking about the you know like for folks who thinks they, it's a very principled position and ethical position, and it can very much be. But right. if you think that the pressures because of the insufficient resources in terms of times and money and human uh, uh, just student cap yeah human capital yeah. if you think that does not strain you and push you towards many times lesser quality work or just put you in like difficult positions yeah. I mean don't be naive about this and I want to add further on this you have all that pressure to publish and pressure to deliver but meanwhile, it's really worth remembering that almost twice as much research, for example, in the U.S., happens outside 
of academia, just in terms of the research volume. Uh, so the U.S. has something like 3.5% of GDP into research, and more than half of that is in companies and uh, other institutes uh, through federal and also private grants. Uh, yeah. So gotcha. if that's what you really care about, do not just confine yourself to one kind of position necessarily in a university. Uh, you can get through that. Of course, that has its own pressures, which is maybe not to publish, but to deliver a product. And right. all of that gives you in another set of ethical dilemmas. But hey, that's life. And so you can stand up to your principles in different kinds of positions is, is what I'm trying to say. So yeah. do yeah. not think those are non-existent in a professor <laughs> position. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think... Uh... Yeah, there can be, you know, I think a lot of the category of the ugly falls in the fact that academia is not uh, immune to all the ugliness that is in the rest of the world, right? Like, we still have misogyny, we still have uh, racism, we still have um, sexism, we still have, um, we still have people cutting corners to get get ahead, uh, or or being forced to decide, should I cut corners to get ahead? Because this is really important. Making compromises, you you know, like saying, okay, if I compromise a little bit here, then I'll get tenure and then I'll become like a good researcher. I, you know, I imagine it's, it's like every part of our society has to deal with this kind of stuff. And, and just because, you know, uh, academics or academia are, are held in this kind of like uh, almost, um, you know, doing doing it for the love of science and, and everything else is, is secondary and held in, in high esteem. It doesn't mean that they're still human beings. They still have incentives to kind of make the same mistakes that, that uh, uh, police officers, uh, teachers, uh, uh, firemen, what anybody like has these, you know, they're all stressful jobs and they all come with different incentives and you all, you, you, they're, the people in them are are the same fallible people that do any other job. So y- you have to somehow um, get by that, and 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 just like any other job, just stand by your your ideals and stand by your your uh, what you think is important, and 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 persevere despite you know humans being involved. Like unfortunately, we're we're, <laughs> we're always going to be involved in these things. Like, yeah. Um, so it's it, we're always going to have to deal with this. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things I and this is something I w- wanted to talk about, too, like I, I, you know, the human beings, you know, these these annoying species, uh, they 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 also exist within uh, not just uh, as professors and academics, but also within the bureaucracy of, of a university. Right. And they're incentivized to, uh, I think, more so now than, than previously uh, make money. It's like, you know, this 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 idea of like keeping uh these these endowments full of money and having money to, to, to be able to chase things. So there's I so the, and I wanted to kind of ask and see what your point is, but uh, what your viewpoint on this is. But I wanted to know: Do you think I, I think there's been more of a push towards hiring uh, non tenure track professors to kind of fill in some of this teaching load and and maybe not have to hire someone uh, at, on a tenure track position. And thus not have to commit 30 or 40 years of salary and have like basically because there's such a, a huge glut of qualified people looking for teaching jobs. Like I imagine that if you can't get a position and you want to be in academia, 
and and a school says, okay, we can't offer you a tenure track position, but you can be a lecturer or or um, uh, a professor, an adjunct professor uh, in this department teaching this, and then maybe it can be a gateway to get a tenure track. You may just jump on it. You may be like, okay, sure, I'll, that's my way in. And then, and so I can imagine they are able to take care of teaching, having the teaching, having very competent teachers, very smart. PhDs, like we said, there's a lot of smart people that don't get these jobs and then be, you know, handle that aspect of it, still be able to teach their students, bring in the, the tuition that the students get in and not have to make this kind of commitment. So I, I, I wonder uh, what your thoughts on this, you guys, especially Elias, since you're like in the middle of this, is this something that you find that uh, jobs are starting to disappear, uh, tenure track jobs, and, and you start to see more lecturer type jobs or, or, or adjunct professors? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's not a zero-sum game. So maybe in terms of number, tenure track jobs are also increasing. But okay. those adjunct professorship jobs, it's not a good deal. And sadly, it's becoming, in terms of percentage at least, more and more prevalent. And it's really not healthy for everyone involved. And that's what you get when you deal with education purely as a as a supply and demand uh, uh process, uh, like you just said, and uh, you lose quality, not because of these people are not remarkable individuals, they are, they're incredibly qualified, but because they're always on a contract on a semester to semester basis, they're not uh, settled down and secure and happy. And with, obviously, they often these part time jobs come with much less benefits. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so then the person is in that position, looking for the next position. And they're doing this education thing kind of like on the side. And I mean, that's a recipe in the long term for 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 disaster. And so it's 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 not a great situation. And like to your point earlier, it reminds me of I forgot who said this, but uh, he said of Harvard that it's a it's essentially a hedge fund with a small university attached to it. <laughs> <laughs> and in many ways, it is. I mean, it's just a vehicle for running an endowment in so many ways. And it's just a brand at some level. Mind you, they don't do a good job with running those endowments, which I find the most ironic and something, if you're interested, worth reading about. I mean, some of these fanciest fancy. and richest private schools actually don't handle their finances very well. And Really? Well... Yeah, in many in many ways, I mean, they're in terms of just how they actively manage their investment, end up being not so great in terms of return on investment, and it comes at the detriment of the school becoming less and less a vehicle for education and more like a brand that they're selling. And of course, they get away with it because it's a good brand, and sure, yeah, uh, it's actually still a good quality education, but also more so a launching pad for your career more so than an incredibly quality education that you don't get at Ohio State or whatever. I mean, oh, right, right. right? So right. it's not that. So, yeah. but yeah, so uh, look, there are so many problems in academia. I'm still going for it. I still think it's a great job. And oh, yeah. obviously, so many things I like about life, I can accomplish there. And hey, maybe I'm too naive, but. Uh, Maybe in two or three or ten years, I would be saying something else. But I'm just—I'm not trying to say all of this to discourage people from applying. But it's important to know this stuff 
also you go in stronger if you know that stuff in advance. And yeah, yeah to your point, Lou, yeah, this adjunct system is just not a good shortcut uh, hmm. for everyone involved. And sadly, it's becoming more and more prevalent. Unless you're a physical chemist looking for the same jobs that Elias is going for, then, then, <laughs> then, we are, then we're trying to discard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> then uh, I think the semiconductor industry is actually looking for folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I, I think uh, the only other thing, uh, as far as the ugly category, I could think of, um, and this, this, this I found out. Oh, and by the way, I had a question. So with the the, these endowments, these mismanaged endowments. How, how does Cornell do? Like in, in your research, <laughs> are they are they handling it okay? Should, should I can I... neither confirm nor deny that I know anything about this. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, okay. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna call 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 my peeps over there and be like, hey, what's going on? I heard you have this money, these money problems. Elias has been telling me. <laughs> but I, I there there is another uh, ugly aspect that schools can do, and and these have to do with smaller departments, and sometimes this, you know. Tenure is guaranteed, right? Sort of, right? There's ways it cannot be guaranteed. And this is part of the ugly too. So you have this 30, 40 year guaranteed position, sort of, for the most part. But if you're in a, this is just one way it can happen. Uh, you know, the university can be like, hey, we have this theoretical and applied mechanics, um, you know, uh, department that was really big back in the heyday, but now is, is now it can be easily absolved into the math department. Uh, so let's just do that. And let's like do away with uh, theoretical applied mechanics and then just have those professors go into the math department. You're like, okay, that, that makes sense. Sure. Why not? Well, now the department's dissolved. Now you no longer have tenure. Now you have to kind of show like that you're, you know, you deserve of tenure. And then if, if they decide they can just be like, no, we, we don't really want to pay your salary anymore. Like ten years ago, it made sense, but now, now that the department, now that the department's dissolved, you don't have tenure. Like we can just say, "Good luck, find another job," or whatever. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it, it, it's very, very rare. This is, it's, it's kind of hard to dissolve a department, uh, especially if it's a big one. But I mean, you know, nothing in life is is guaranteed. So there, there is some. Hey, we might, some... we might start to hear more about this stuff with the uh, with the financial troubles now that universities are going through. So. That's right. That's right. So, so this may be, you know, if, if there's, you know, near and dear to my heart, material science, right? Like material science is kind of one of these departments that are usually on the smaller side and, and kind of either, ha, you know, it usually gets brought from chemical engineering or is like an extension of the physics department or is maybe some old department like metallurgy that turned into material science. I mean, they, they all have like their, their kind of origins in somewhere. Maybe they'll just go right back into them. Like they're like, okay, we don't need a material science department. It's a, it's kind of applied physics really. So we're just going to throw them into the physics department. And then all of a sudden you have a bunch of professors that don't no longer have tenure. I mean, and, and you know, it's, it can be done like Elliot said, like in this time of COVID and, 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 uh, not having enough money due to students not being able to go to classes or whatever may happen, this this is something that can happen. So there there are some times where this this uh, dream job of this utopia that you've you've suffered and 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 worked so hard for can. I mean, honestly, if you're if you're doing your job and you're kind of gaining notoriety, they, they don't want to lose you. So it's usually when someone gets really really big, it's usually they 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 they, they have to 
make make the position more attractive to you because they don't want to lose you to some other school. And then professors get poached and move around all the time. Not all the time, but especially if they're big and they're 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 really well known and they get big somewhere, they can be. So so that's usually more what you see. But I mean, it can happen. It, you you can uh, lose your tenure. Of course, uh, you can lose it other ways too. That that usually uh, like breaking the law involve you being way. stupid. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I, but generally, it's it's a uh, it's it's pretty much a lifetime appointment. But you you it's you know it's. Nothing, nothing is guaranteed. So that, that is part of the ugly, I think, as well. But, and, and now we're gonna, now we're going to transition and just. It's happening. Bring it, we're bringing, we're bringing it back to the good. We're kind of we're, yeah, we're, yeah, we're, yeah. we're turning the battleship. We're kind of just move, like here we go, here we go, here we go. <laughs> but it is an incredible, incredible position. Oh, very nice. Uh, it, it is. Oh, this is great. It is the dream job, so to speak, of, of so many PhD students. You get to uh, di dictate what you're going to work on. You get completely to delve into every little nook and cranny. Once you have tenure, you can be like, I want to delve into this, like really hardcore. And, and you know what? I don't need a giant group. I just need a small little group of researchers, and we're just going to do some bunch of theoretical work and just really dive in. Boom, no problem. Like, you're you're – it's your show like it's that is incredible there's no other job like this in 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 phd them like that that you have this <laughs> kind of, like that, words here. Uh, it, yeah in, in phd them there's nothing like this where you get to dictate what you want to do and they pay you to do it uh for decades and they just like yeah it's it's your show go for it go for it elias like hey i want to I want to just put, just take uh, insects and coat them in gold, and then stick them in the sea and just look at them. Like, sure, go, go to town. I mean, I, obviously, like uh, you, that's probably not what's going to happen. But like, you can, you have this tremendous freedom that is, is, and you get to, you have the university pushing you, and you are, you are feeling, you're probably doing some of the the best work you can possibly do, and and because you know you've had to work so hard to get there. You, you can't help but have gotten pretty good at what you're doing. So now you're like one of these people that are dictating to, to quote Elias, what's being written in the textbooks. That's amazing. You are writing, you know, it's, it's a equivalent to a historian writing history. You are actually saying, this is the science that we're going to pass down from generations and generations. And your stuff it's, is going to be taught. It's That's, so funny. Growing up, like during undergrad, like we, I used to look at the, you know, the, those graphs and in, uh, with a comparative chart, uh, you know, with the different people's uh, theory and they're, they're one line in that graph. And then, and, and at some point I realized that, oh, wow, this is somebody's research, like 10 years of research, which <laughs> allowed them to be on this graph as one data point. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just incredible that now you are going to be that data point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you heard it here, folks. If you want to be that data point in that book, go for it at your track position. That's right. That's right. You, you want to, you know, you want to be, um, uh, you know, the 
Navier Stokes equations. You want to be Navier. You want to be Stokes. Wow, just yeah. go, go for it, man. <laughs> like that's that's uh, you you get to be the one who 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 dictates what what kids will be tortured by when they're going as undergrads. They're like, oh, this is annoying. Who came up with this? Well, it was you. You did that. That's 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 exciting to me. I think that's one of the coolest things about the job. Not to the, those kids, but for you, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> well, kids are going to hate you. What's the PhDL does not condone torturing undergrads in any kind of way. <laughs> uh, for the record, for the record. But but I, I think that's that's uh, that, it's special, right? It's it's tough to get, but for a reason because they're just amazing jobs. So so uh, you know, kudos to you, Elias, for like heading down that path. Keep us updated. Let us know how it goes. And uh, PhDL Nation is is waiting. Like uh, they're on the edge of their seats. Like what adventures are you going to get into? It's it's uh, we're we're all excited. So I know. So I think. Kingdom. So anything else, guys? Like uh, any other things you want to get, you know? Oh, this was great. I hope Isabella yeah. finds an answer to her question in this episode. And we'd love to get feedback if there were things we didn't touch upon. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Let us know if we uh, handled your questions. Uh, we, we did our best. Uh, you know, we, we, we may even in the future have like uh, some guests. And if we can grab one of these assistant professors in the middle of going for their tenure track that might be something oh, yeah. we, we do in the future and uh i i know a few that are that are going through it uh uh and so so i'm sure you know they, i think they have lots of time so i'm sure they're like i got a whole afternoon to. totally open like yeah <laughs> just let me know like uh like i i can i can dedicate as much time as i want like it's you know it's, i'm sure they're like they have tons of time but but uh, thanks again uh, for another great episode. Thank you, panel, for for bringing bringing the, yeah, your A game as usual. Uh, you, you have you have passed my tenure track uh, committee. Uh, <laughs> wow! Uh, I, I have dubbed you fully tenured members of the What's the PhD deal? Now you can start slacking off. You don't have to worry about anything. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so so thanks, PhD Nation. Thank you for for listening to another episode. Uh, of course, any questions, comments, anything, uh, send it over to uh, the email in the show notes. And with that, we will say keep on rocking, be excellent to one another, and uh, rock on, everybody. Bye, Elias. Bye, Rajan. Adios. Woo.